and that's the subject of the talk tonight is dancing with life re-entry without burning up or without getting the bend integrating with life bringing our dharma into daily life where it counts after all and there's so many ways to approach this kind of subject the all-important subject of integration the tantric principle is assimilating everything into the past not just staying in a Buddhist meditation center all one's life but learning how to find the Dharma and live the Dharma everywhere how to cultivate awareness loving-kindness and all the other virtues in every circumstance how to turn both happiness and suffering into learning experiences into Dharma practice how to assimilate everything into the past our work our relationships our speedy travels whatever the crying kids the competitive marketplace or whatever we return to or even returning to our hermit's hut in the garden where we no longer have the group practice and teachings to support us and entertain us all day <laughs> so one thing I think is extremely important is to recognize that we're not really going anywhere there is no wall around this meditation place is there this is part of the world even when I was in the three-year retreat you know we never went out nobody ever came in there was a wall so the wall was only about eight feet high the sky is infinite we're not out of the world when we're in the monastery we're part of the world we're part of the sangha of all being of the community it's not so different it might look different but it's not so different just like everybody else in the world we're trying to find our happiness or our peace whatever we're looking for so it's not that different really you know when we leave here tomorrow by the way the um, noble silence will be ending at uh, breakfast time 7.30 although the volume may be turned up tomorrow the fast forward button might be hit things start to move a little more fast you know the kaleidoscope starts to roll and all that we might get seasick still you get used to it you can get used to anything it's not so different after all so are we afraid to leave I hope not it's not so scary we can dance with life we don't have to hide in the safety of the silence and the solitude and the blessed meditation place special as it is here life goes on it's what we take home and, and live that counts so I think it's important to celebrate and dance with life and enjoy moving along not holding back not trying to save what we've gathered here like misers let's go out and spend it <laughs> and see what's left 
if we can lose it, it should be, we should divest ourselves of it, because it's not real. It's not going to be around forever anyway. And whatever we've really learned, I use the word learned advisedly, whatever is really true cannot be lost. Peace and concentration can be lost, but wisdom and insight is not lost. So let's go forward and do what has to be done. Take up our zafus and walk. <laughs> they say. So if we want to carry on in daily life, first, I think it's incumbent upon us really to have a daily practice like to meditate once a day or twice a day, formal meditation in the morning or whenever, to have a place in our home where we can do it, to be very helpful, to make a place, not just to try to find a place every day. A different place makes it harder, but to make a little corner or a room or place in the garden or, I don't care, do it in the bathtub for all I care. Wherever's comfortable, in the beach chair, in the garden, it's fine. Sky gazing and do it every day. Very helpful. That half hour, hour in the morning can perfume the whole day with awareness. And then after that, carry the awareness into our activities. Not just meditating a half hour in the morning and then going out and, I don't know what, selling heroin on the corner <laughs> or whatever you do. <laughs> But bringing what we believe into daily life, through our livelihood, through our relations, cultivating awareness and connectedness in the workplace, or even while we're driving to work or however we get to work. And bringing mindfulness and awareness into every moment of whatever we're doing, making it a practice, making our whole life into a practice that way doesn't mean we have to be trippy and sit cross-legged on top of our desk. (laughs) (laughs) But we can find, always we can create moments in the day to have our great sky breath. Ah, what a shout pet. (laughs) Or inwardly to wake ourselves up. I often hear from myself and others. I don't have time to meditate. Mm-hmm. There is no such thing as time except us to create the time. There's 24 hours in everybody's day. How we use it is up to us. Let's face it. So even if we don't have a few hours or you know whatever, we can create a minute or moment any time in the day and just stop and awaken. Have a breath. Have a moment of mindfulness as they call it. Have a a sky breath and relax and drop everything. (laughs) Have a break. Take a walk. Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Zen master, says, whenever you hear a bell, just stop whatever you're doing. Just for a minute of mindfulness. I think that's a beautiful practice. It doesn't mean you have to wait till you hear a meditation gong 
when you hear a church bell or a doorbell or somebody's horn honking. What? Telephone. Yeah, the telephone. Exactly. Keeps you creative. You know, when the telephone rings, instead of grabbing and saying, What now? Just let it ring an extra moment and have that moment of mindfulness to create more time in your day. You slow it down a little bit. Explore the hole in between all of these tightly packed moments and minutes of our intense schedule. Let's create these moments of awareness throughout the day. Just like the Muslims do, you know, five times a day, bowing down to Mecca, they take out their prayer rug and stop whatever they're doing, even the rug salesmen, the businessmen downtown, and they bow to Mecca. Isn't that interesting? Five times a day to have their moment of mindfulness. Do we have time for that or we're too busy? We're even more busy than the, the rug salesmen. So whenever we're walking around, we can also use it as part of our walking meditation or relaxing, this little sky gazing, open total sensory openness. Really make our whole day into spiritual practice. It'd be delightful. I don't mean as a chore. You don't have to walk down Main Street like a sleepwalker, put your hands out and your eyes closed, get run over or arrested. <laughs> but, you know, when you're standing waiting for the bus or waiting to go into the peep show or whatever, queuing <laughs> up to buy the lottery tickets or whatever, bet on the race, I don't know. While you're waiting online, instead of waiting impatiently, say, oh, have a little time here for moments of awareness. You can see I know these practices well. <laughs> it's a tantric way. <laughs> and also, you know, spice up your day with a little spiritual reading or listen to tapes or chant while you're driving or walking or listen to chant tapes in the car. You know, whatever, whatever does it for you. Whatever keeps this alive, whatever recharges your battery. And then, of course, you can help yourself, I'm sure, by being part of the sangha where you are, going to a weekly sitting group or something. Or making a sangha, a sitting group, if there isn't one available. And then recharge your battery by going to retreats once in a while during the year. I know it's a luxury have a time to take off, but you know, once or twice or more in the year, come to a retreat. <coughs> Recharge the battery. Keep it going all year round. You know, even if you miss a few days, as long as it, most of the days of the year you're with the practice, then it continues year round. It's like exercise. Even if you don't do it seven days a week, five days a week, six days a week is enough to stay healthy and sane. So, as my first meditation teacher always used to say, Goenkaji, continuity <laughs> is the secret of success. And in case you didn't get it, he would say it again and again. It's true. It's true. I feel like more important than doing a few long retreats or going to huge events or 
getting bopped on the head by God or Dalai Lama or anybody, or my girlfriend. Even better than that, has been keeping up a regular practice for 25 years every day. And, you know, nobody else is keeping track, I assure you. And if I missed a day, it didn't matter, because over 25 years, that's what matters. That's what matters. To keep it alive. And enjoy the joy of meditation. You know, savor it. You don't have to make it into a chore, a big should, like paying penance for our sins. We're suffering enough already. Let's celebrate the spirit, the awakening, the joy of getting together, of sangha, of community. This is the time for that. I don't think this is the time for the Buddha. The Buddha is always there. The Buddha is long gone. I don't think there's a time for the Buddha and the great gurus to come and save us. There's a time for the Sangha, the community, for collaboration, for getting together, for group enlightenment, as it were. Not just individualism and will, but for collaboration and interconnection. I really feel like that's why the Zen Master Thich Nhat Hanh who is a traditional master from Vietnam, very learned. He himself said, becoming Buddha, so-called Maitreya, coming Buddha in the future, is not a person, it's the Sangha. Take refuge in the Sangha. That's our support and our reliance and our, our help. So I encourage you to make Sangha wherever you go and to share these gifts that we're given. Gifts are squandered if they're not shared. And to work out the implications of these truths, these teachings, our experiences in daily life. Not just say, I should not kill, lie, and steal and intoxicate myself. Why not? Why shouldn't I? Well, check it out. See what happens when you do. See what happens when you harm others or when you're angry, what you get out of it and what you lose. It's in our own self-interest, our enlightened self-interest to follow the laws of nature, not to go against the current of how things are. It makes sense. It actually works. Not to harm. Makes sense. Who wants to be harmed? And harming others is harmful to us too. As you find out for yourself, if you check carefully, as I'm sure you have already, it's obvious. I feel that things are not as mysterious as they sometimes seem when we look into the Dharma teachings, when we look into ourselves and our relations. It's very clear, as long as we're not fooling ourselves, which is up to us. Which is up to us. So, this week, we've been practicing, basically, the practice of Dzogchen in Tibetan called Tregchud, cutting through or seeing through in the form of sky gazing, in Tibetan called Namkai Naljur, sky space union yoga, 
mingling our finite mind with the infinite awareness, sky-like awareness, sky-gazing, in short. Or, as we talked about, sustaining present wakefulness, moment-to-moment present awareness. Let's not get confused by the supportive practices that we are introducing and doing around it, like chanting and all the other tools that we use so we can relax and open and vivify our presence and manage our energy, be wakeful, chanting, compassion and devotion, meditation, self-inquiry, what else did we do? Breathing exercises, breath energy purification exercises. All these are tools to support the main practice of present awareness. So I hope you'll take these home and put them in your spiritual toolbox and don't let them get too rusty and find which one or two really helps you support your main practice of awareness, of naked awareness. If chanting helps, do more chanting or chant to yourself. We don't have to just chant out loud. We chant to ourselves or chant while we walk. One of the best ways to do walking meditation is to do and fairly vigorously chanting a, a mantra. Let's just pick the Heart Sutra mantra that we chanted today. Gate, gate. With every step. Um, these are my feet. <laughs> Children. Gate, gate, para, gate, para, sam, gate, bodhisattva, gate. And if you walk like around the hill here, it takes about 45 minutes doing that, you really have, you'll see how attentive you become. It's a lot easier than sitting and trying to have one, to cultivate one pointedness on breathing, where your mind goes all over the place. Make it easy for yourself and fun and relaxing. Walk around the hill and with each step a syllable of the mantra. And you'll see you can actually coordinate the breathing and the step and the mantra, and let go of everything else. You'd be amazed how easy samadhi becomes if you use a little bit of skillful means to support it. Upaya means method. And chanting, you know, you can do any time, like driving or walking. You don't have to do it to yourself. Chant inside the inner mantra if it helps. So I find these practices very enlivening, very supportive, and very delightful. So I hope you will too. Seems like we've had a good time this week, so I think you're getting with the spirit of the thing. And really, I think where the rubber really meets the road on the spiritual path is in daily life, and bringing it into every moment, not just an hour of meditation in the morning, two hours, three hours. It's not enough. Three hours meditation in the morning is not enough. There's still 21 hours left in the day. What about them? And looking into what it means. All the teachings about loving kindness. You know, not just not-self, anatta, very abstract, but how about unselfish? Unselfish, less selfish in life. 
but see how selfish we are or aren't not just theorize about anatta no self and serving others not just trying to dominate or exploit them or get to compete but notice how we actually go through life what our stance is how we act today because according to the law of karma as we sow we shall reap so if we have a positive intention if we are warm and loving warmth and love will surround us if we're angry and aggressive that's what we'll get back and experience wherever we go is anger and aggression but please don't take my word for it check it out see if it's true for yourself <coughs> you won't be disappointed I'm sure so that's all I wanted to say tonight because I've gotten a lot of questions and people wanting interviews so I'd like to hear from you please bring me your bring me your final questions I'm going to sort it all out tonight this is your last chance to get enlightened <coughs> I was thinking about a quality that I've come across from people and it's to do with the depth that they can actually feel and experience life and the label I put on it is soul if somebody has a deep soul they may not be free of suffering in fact often it's pain and suffering that I think tends to sometimes develop soul but I just wonder what your comments might be on that aspect of humanity yeah, I think we all need to have a little more soul. Yeah. Especially we soulless Buddhists. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little more soul. A little more humanity. A little more warmth. Doesn't mean we have to make create more suffering for ourselves, but you know, let's not deny it and avoid it either. There are some cookbooks out now in the States, especially for men, on how to develop soul. Is there a option? Dover soul? The Dzogchen practice is reading the books by Thomas Moore. Uh-huh. Very good book. About soul and spirit, not just always trying to, you know, climb the spiritual mountain, this very male achievement-oriented goal, <coughs> get to the rarefied top of the mountain. But how about plumbing our depths in the shadows of life, and where the streams and the jungle, the thing, food grows? You know, getting our hands dirty a little bit, not just being like a feet old bachelors, the total, you know, monastic bachelors that totally control every moment of our whole life. And can't stand it if you know some kids come and cry. So Thomas Moore and James Hillman have written a lot about this lately. Very uh, interestingly, not what soul really means, and I don't mean like eternal, everlasting soul, but the kind of soul you're talking about, like richness of spirit. Of course, the Dzogchen practice or aspect of that is it's a tantric aspect about celebrating like it says in the tantras the best way to accumulate merits in the vajrayana is through tantric feasts it doesn't say through renouncing the world it doesn't say through circumambulating stupas 
It says through tantric speech. So just think about that. With that direction that's pointing. You subscribe to that magazine? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I wasn't here today, I was um, helping teach through this uh, experiential workshop on, workshop on death and dying. Mm-hmm. It's uh, interesting because um, what I noticed was uh, as I came from the street to be uh, kind of very quiet and still, and um, able to be with us most of the time, doing, as I was doing all of the supportive work. I think speed up, and I lost it really. Um, Shame on you. <laughs> but there was, a, I think there was a kind of a point at which a choice came where I was either going to do what I had to do wholeheartedly as best I could, yeah. or kind of let that go and 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 sort of remain, you know, like you say, if you like, just you know, okay. Cool, calm, and collected. Yeah, but somehow not really. Get out of it. You know, just giving myself as much as I could and, and blowing it was the best way to go. Because that was what was required, what was needed. But I'd like to hear what you. How, you know, what, what do you do when when there's so many demands? Where, where do you go? Do you I know there's no easy answer. Uh-huh. I, I, I don't know. I try not to retract. But you try not to get carried away, also just do what has to be done. You be present in the midst of the chaos. And then you find a still center in the midst of the eye of the hurricane or something. And then come back later when you have the moment. <sighs> and kind of just I mean, there's no easy answers. Tell me a little more. How do you mean you blew it? Why did you blew it? It's like, um. It's just, it's something. So, so there's something so subtle that gradually um, getting speeded up and and kind of forgetting it's forgetfulness. Mm. Um, <coughs> to a certain point where losing yourself mm-hmm. is called for, not just always being in the witness box. Right. You know that's still very dualistic. Right. Well, that's where that's. You know, somebody you said to lose yourself is to find your true self. Mm. That's what it means. It doesn't mean always to be observing. But if you're one with it, you wouldn't be observing, would you? You're not even just doing it, it's just happening. So those are subtleties one could look into. That's why I asked you, what do you mean by blowing it? That you didn't remember you had to keep, uh, uh, you know, staying back? Um... Or did you, you know, fuck up and beat some, up some old person? Or <laughs> <laughs> Again? Yeah. <laughs> 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 the, the feeling of... Um, <laughs> I noticed that I blew it when I remembered, but I hadn't been, well, maybe, you know, like I said, in the witness box. Uh, oh, you know, whether I've been doing everything, but I somehow I forgot me in that. 
I was just doing, I was just, I was just completely doing what needed to be done and completely with it. So maybe, that, maybe that's being unhealthy, maybe that's what I should be doing. I don't know, but there's some sense of it being unmindful, I don't know. Mindfulness is a means, it's not the end. Okay. I mean, I didn't blow it, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Who said you did? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, it's all open to question, isn't it? Yeah. What does mindful really mean? That you always have to stand back and watch whatever you're doing? I think it's got something to do with it's at that point when there's so much happening that something escapes me and I don't notice something I trip over and suddenly, you know, mm-hmm. it didn't happen but you know, little instances of a similar kind. You know, the food has gone all over the floor. I'll tell you what happened. One point, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> now we're getting gas. <laughs> 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 so there's a lot to do. There's a lot of people came, many more than was expected. And so I had a lot to do to prepare the food and all that. And I put the pizza, there weren't any trays. <laughs> I put a on and dripped. <laughs> and then, so that was kind of like a got the leaks <laughs> and the rubber beans. <laughs> I prepare all this food and never forget to put half of it out. <laughs> That's life, you know, somebody called one great catastrophe or something. <laughs> one marvelous catastrophe after another. <laughs> but I think it's, you know, it's very helpful if you have a sense of humor about it and then you just sort of go about your business and 
where the pizza spills or doesn't spill, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, New Day doings. Some other ways, but you know, cleaning up the pizza is just another thing to do. So you clean up the pizza, and next time I don't know what you know you plan it differently or you get more help or you be practical. But there are some underlying issues in all of this, you know, about like trying to do more and faster and never good enough and better and pushing. You know, overextending, and you know we do that to ourselves. So if you look into those, it becomes more clear what's happening. Mm-hmm. And blowing it is a judgment call. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's not like you you blew your whole, you know, all the income that you got from this week of meditating, you blew it, spent it all on a losing horse today or something. <laughs> well, there wasn't a lot. It wasn't actually that. It was also the question is, you know, maybe that's all right to blow it because I'm going to learn. Well, what is blowing it mean? Right. Um, I mean, you spilled the pizza, and you got speedy, and now you're back, and, you know, is this any better? Is the other side of it. How is it, you know, maybe you're blowing it here. Asking <laughs> 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 you stupid questions. You get stupid answers. And then you go upstairs and you say, oh, I really blew that. I should never have said I overextended, you know. (laughs) 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 Regrets and doubts and checking all the time. You know, that's why the Korean Zen master, um, Sung San Sinim, always says, you know, in his marvelous pidgin English, no checking, (laughs) just go straight 10,000 years. One mistake after another. (laughs) (laughs) Blowing it, you know, success and failure and all this. In Buddhism, there's this kind of theme of the eight. It's kind of like the eight worldly winds, it's called. Pleasure and pain, you know, blow it back and forth. And loss and gain like elation and depression, you know, loss and gain, praise and blame, and something else, I don't know, fame and shame, it doesn't matter, but, you know, always being blown back and forth, like, I blew it, I made it, I mean, on what scale? You know, one hour you have a great meditation, you feel like you really made it, and from now on it's always going to be like that, now you really, you know, you've got it, right? And then the next hour, you know, what happens? <laughs> but over the longer picture, you know, how much difference does it make, those little oscillations? Mm. I mean, really the longer picture, like, you know, mm. millions of years of geologic time. <laughs> how much does it matter if you or I get enlightened today? <coughs> so, I keep a sense of humor about it in perspective. <coughs> <coughs> and cultivate a little, you know, equanimity and detachment and sense of humor and just doing our best step by step and not making a big deal out of it either way. And I blow it all the time. All the time. And everybody does actually. But it's not it's not blown. It's just a feeling we have about it. <coughs>
disappointment or surprise when things get out of you know, things are out of our control and then once in a while we notice that they're out of our control. <laughs> so that's the time we think they're under control. <laughs> Sometimes surprise can go the other way. We can suddenly realize right. we've done something yeah. that may have helped good. for 18 months. Right. That we wouldn't have done before we started medicine. Yeah. That can be a surprise too. Happened by accident, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in the back here. You just said something about having a good meditation. I wonder what one was. I never should have said that, Shampoo. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I never had one. <laughs> You know, sometimes you feel like you had one, you sort of make up, you think on some grid that you had a good meditation, right? Or a bad one for that matter. You sort of had that feeling because it went faster, or because you didn't fall asleep, or because you feel good, or something. I'm just wondering whether, whether you'd expect it to change over time. I'm thinking about you talking about walking around the hill. Mm-hmm. I reckon I could do, say, about six or seven paces before I had a thought about that. And then yes, so that's probably fine. about 200 yards, and then it would occur to me that actually I was trying to say, Garthi, Garthi. I'll try and see. Well, I mean, I guess in a way I do. I mean, that's just the nature of meditation. But um, for me, it just it hasn't, <coughs> hasn't seemed to change that much. Like when you start, you expect to have nothing but thoughts, and, and you're not disappointed. And uh, you know, sort of. And when you end, also. What? And in the end, also, <laughs> nothing but thoughts. No, but I don't know. Have you been meditating 15 years since you brought up that number? <coughs> no, I've been meditating longer than that. But so nothing has happened. Well, I don't know what you mean by happened, but. Um, I picked up on something you said at the beginning of the week. You said something about, you know, if you're you know, just struggling keeping present or something like that, then maybe you could um, focus on your breath. You know, well, mm-hmm. the meditation that I learned wasn't to do with that. And given that uh, I did have trouble staying present, I thought, well, yeah, okay, so follow the breath. Mm-hmm. And again, four breaths, five breaths, maybe. That's pretty good. <laughs> Stop bragging. <laughs> make the rest of us feel bad. <laughs> How many would be enough? <laughs> he raised some interesting questions, doesn't it, about the discriminating mind and judgment. How many would be enough? A hundred breaths? Would that do it? A thousand? One hour without a thought, would that do it? One day? Well, you wouldn't. And the yogis have been with us for 24 hours, but afterwards they're not enlightened. I mean, so they say, you know, these kind of stories. Because <coughs> habituation is over a long period of time, so just quashing the thought process for 24 hours doesn't do it either. So this is the way I see it, that what we're doing is exercising our awareness, which is like a muscle, and you know, if we don't use it, it gets very flabby and, and mushy, but if we use it, it's more firm and toned up and useful, 
and we feel better and it works better. So it's not important, since you mentioned focusing on the breath, it's actually not important how many breaths we're on. What's important is the exercise of bringing the, of mastering the attention. By bringing the attention back to the breath each time, we're exercising that muscle of awareness. It's an awareness practice, not just sitting on the breath, but exercising the awareness, you know, bringing it back <coughs> and again makes us more aware. So it's an awareness practice. We're exercising our inherent awareness. We're not getting more awareness from somewhere. We're not, you know, going to get any either. We're mastering it. We're actualizing. We're using it better. So all these practices are awareness practices, you know. We're using our attention to be more aware. The awareness is there. We're not calling upon it usually. <coughs> That's the bit that I find really frustrating. It's not. I don't have a problem coming back to breath or whatever technique mm-hmm. I'm using. It, it's all that the unawareness that there is in that long fantasy that you just right. had. Right. Well, it's called distraction, as you know. Well, I sense you will sort of get past that. What kind of a meditation are you usually doing? Since you said you you hinted that you're doing some other kind of meditation. Well. I, I learned TM a long while ago, I mm-hmm. did that for a long while, mm-hmm. and recently I've just been um, looking at Buddhist meditation. Right. So in the beginning TM looks like concentrating on a mantra, right? But later it becomes the effortless inner mantra of awareness, right? Mm-hmm. Effortless. Not mantra. Effortless awareness, or whatever they call it. So that's a good principle. And then to notice how we're carried away by our daydreams. And then we have more choice in the matter about coming back and being present or just daydreaming. If you've been meditating for 15 years, I'm sure you're more aware of it now than you were then. Otherwise you wouldn't be here. You'd be doing something else, wouldn't you? So I, I personally have a lot of, of faith in this process. It's a process. <coughs> and it's an infinite journey, you know, it just keeps unfolding more and more. There's no where there's nowhere to land, there's no there's no goal line to cross, you know. A hundred breaths, an hour, all day without thoughts. It doesn't do it because there's six more days to come. Full of thoughts. But when we have the insight or the awareness that sees through the thoughts, we get free of thoughts mm-hmm. more and more gradually. It's not just trying to get rid of thoughts or perceptions or objects or emotions, but it's about freedom. You know, not just getting high, but being free. Then the thoughts don't go away. We're not trying to flatline our brain but to liberate. Liberate. Then we can use the thought. We can analyze things. We can remember. We can intellectualize when we choose to. Maybe even better because there's less clutter. <clears throat> there's a big difference between like openness and awareness and sky gazing on the one hand and just daydreaming and distraction. 
It's a diff big difference. Yes, you translate Gata means beyond. So the whole mantra means beyond, beyond, totally beyond, beyond even the beyond. You <laughs> ask. <laughs> Bodhi, which means awakening, and Swaha means like um, far out. <laughs> Amen, hallelujah. Swaha. We don't usually chant mantras to their meaning, and that's why, because they don't really mean much. It's the vibrational thing, it vibrates in your different you know, chakras and um, it's called the Gate Mantra, the Mantra of Transcendental Wisdom, it's beyond the mind, it's beyond meaning, it's beyond achievement. You know, if you study the Sutra, the Sutra is kind of unpacking the mantra by Transcendental Wisdom. It says things like there's no wisdom, there's nowhere to go, you know, there's nothing to get. So that's all the beyond, beyond, beyond. It's beyond achievement, it's beyond striving. You know, it's beyond death, it's beyond birth, it's beyond everything. It's right here. <laughs> it is right here, isn't it? The problem is we're usually elsewhere. <laughs> it's always right here. Yes, the one month long retreat we have every summer is the best thing the Dzogchen Foundation has to offer. And it's, the schedule is more or less like this, but um, it's in a hilltop monastery overlooking a big lake and everybody has their own room and there's more space outside to meditate and it's really nice. And I bring a Tibetan Lama and we teach it together. But it's a silent retreat like this. And we go a little more in depth into some of the, you know, we have more time, some of the practice, the chants, the breathing, the Tonglen, the compassion meditation, some yoga energy stuff. But mainly with the sky gazing emphasis. So that's July 19th this year, if anybody's interested. Yes? Another question about the They all have this word Aum. Yes. What does it mean exactly? Is it in all the same meaning? Yes. Aum, <coughs> um, it's very hard to translate, but it's, they call it the cosmic sound. Watch my mouth. Aum. It, it, it encompasses all the seven... Uh, whatever it is, <coughs> seven something of the musical spectrum. Can I, can I just ask, is Mahamoto and Dzogchen exactly the same? Is it just a different tradition? Or is it, are there some differences in it? Uh, in general it's the same, but there are some differences. If you get into subtleties. Right. But, but presumably the, the point of yeah. So then you have to say the point of all dharma is exactly the same. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Good. <laughs> no, but, you know, it's, 
way we're talking about it for all practical purposes the same. This is not really about the Dharma, but it's something I've been wondering about. That on the sort of spiritual market, what seems to be the really big thing now is this channeling that millions of books on it. So I was wondering if, if in this cosmology that is there some reality where all these fancy spirits and ascended monsters <laughs> and whatever they are sort of live and wait for people to channel them or is it is it sort of is it just fantasy do you think? I think it, it, it's not just fantasy. It's not just fantasy. It depends on how you look at it. Like one of my best friends is a very well-known channel. He channels Seth. Have you heard of Seth? Mm-hmm. We haven't looked at the book. <laughs> Seth speaks. Seth. He's one of the most famous people upstairs. <laughs> as I call it. So. He's always telling me about this stuff, so I listen to what he has to say. You know, it sounds like good stuff to me, so it's okay with me. I don't care where he's getting it from. If he's John's making it up, it's okay with me. He can just say it, I don't care. But what was interesting is that John heard me teach, and then he went and heard some other llamas teach, Tibetan llamas, and he said, You guys are channeling. (laughs) (laughs) I said, What do you mean? He said, Just look at the energy, it's coming down, and you're always. You know, pray, you know, you have a guru Padmasambhava on your head, or you're saying Buddha said. He said, the energy is being channeled. It's not your energy. You're bringing it through. So I thought that was very interesting. I mean, I don't see it that way, but... It's not my teaching. It's not my energy. I'm just a channel. As we all are. So, however you explain that, I don't know. Some people explain it as they have an ascendant side or spirit upstairs and it's coming through them. I don't know, you know. I judge the quality of the material. I mean, it's hard to judge, but... See how it's at? I don't know where it's coming from. I'm not sure anybody does. But one thing I do know is that you know, I found it very helpful to be involved with like a timeless, tried and true spiritual technology. Much more reliable than just, you know, everything that everybody, anybody makes up every week. It's a new thing with a new name and sometimes it works and sometimes they go crazy or you go crazy. So be careful. Check it out. Carefully. Ram Dass, who was a very respectable spiritual teacher, was getting a lot of teachings from <coughs> Emmanuel upstairs <coughs> to a channel named Pat that we all know. And he wrote an introduction to Emmanuel's book. So he, he, you know, thought it was a good thing. I don't know. It's okay. It's all okay with me. What's your issue about this? You're thinking of going to a channel? No, this was just something that we were discussing in this group of friends I had because yeah. at this bookstore in Stockholm they had this a 
abundance crystals that somebody <laughs> who is channeling this spirit with some exotic name so, um, uh, programs these crystals and buy them. They're quite expensive. Commercialism makes everything get a little yeah. out of hand, but there's a lot of mysteries in the universe, who knows? And some of these uh, people that uh, channel, it seems like if spirit sort of really gives them a big ego, they think they're Well, that's not just channeled stuff that seems like that, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, there's a lot of channels these days, you know. If you've got a satellite dish, you get hundreds of them. <laughs> I'm sure. But what are we, who are we channeling? Who are you channeling? <laughs> Yourself or your parents or your, you know, Sweden or what? Your background or? Well, channeling is just a word. That's why I say. The channel says that I'm channeling Padmasambhava, you know, because I'm giving these teachings or his teachings. They can say, who did he get them from? I mean, what is? It? It's just a word. It's just a way of looking at the thing. Yesterday, I heard yesterday morning, I heard the talk of the night before, mm -hmm. and I felt so incredibly inspired and so alive, and it felt as if sort of as if I was a house and all windows mm -hmm. and doors opened, and I felt so light and free and happy. <laughs> And I drove to my job and I kept thinking, I'm so happy, why, what, what, wasn't there something? But there was nothing, and it was just that energy of aliveness and a lot of <coughs> pain and stuff which I had been with a long time was sort of gone. Mm -hmm. And it was like a, like a dream that it ever was there. Mm -hmm. That's that part of the story. <laughs> But then, this morning when I woke up, all doors and all windows were tight, closed again, and I <coughs> it was the old kind of heaviness and kind of depression and hopelessness and the whole shit. Now, I know when reading books or listening to talks or <coughs> being with creatures or working in the garden, 
inspired that opening of the doors and windows. But usually it's all closed. What can one do? Or I mean, when I felt like so open and so happy, at least I had that experience after a long time. I mean, I was so surprised what's all there. Mm-hmm. But when you're closed, you think there's actually nothing there. Right. You're just walking along and doing the thing, and all of a sudden it was like um, hitting a well, hitting a, you know, hitting something. And I thought, oh God, there is so much. <laughs> but now it's all gone again. But I mean, I know it's somewhere. But how can one keep that alive? You can't. I can't. Mm-hmm. And why not? Because it's always just as it is, and you just forget or remember. So it's not up to you to keep it alive. So is it grace when it happens? Something like grace? Well, rather than asking you what do you mean by grace, let me say this. When you feel like it's hopeless and all that, that's just a thought. So if you look into that thought in that moment, you might be surprised. It might not be as solid as you think. <coughs> That's how you, <coughs> yeah, seem quite solid. But how solid are thoughts, really? Well, if you're so in the grip of it, it is very solid. I know, it seems very solid. So at that moment is the time to get out the ice pick or the laser beam or whatever and apply it. Otherwise, you know, there's no other way. I mean, grace? <laughs> you know, tell me more what you mean by that. But I think that it's in that moment where you feel it's the most of course the thing is when you're the most depressed or it's the most claustrophobic it's hard to right take hold you know it's hard to get on your magic horse right then it's like I mean like if you are in mud um, and you think that's not the moment to think about (laughs) loving kindness and letting go you're just thinking Mm -hmm. and choking and right. you deal with that. It's that close. So that's the moment that you have to do something like, say, who is thinking or bring to bear total <coughs> mindfulness or awareness. That's the moment. Mm. Not not some other time where everything is fine. No. That's like a critical moment. That's where it happens <coughs> or it doesn't happen. Well, I blow it then all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all do every moment. But maybe, you know, you need some support for that. Like, that's why people have so many incredibly gross, outrageous, exoteric practices. Like crystals. You know, like bowing to statues, like whatever. To get you moving out of the mud. Mm. You know, like listening to the tape. Maybe I still turn on the tape again. <laughs> Whatever. Gross and exoteric as that seems. To get out of the mud. Just to do anything to get out of that depression mud. That's why, you know, we have churches. You know, so you get your body moving and you go over to the church. And then God is there. It gets you moving. gets you out in the sunlight, you know. gets you dressed. You have to shave. You have to, like, take your slippers off. And like make yourself presentable, you know, get your energy moving, get out of the mud. So I don't know really, Rose, you never really talked to me about your spiritual life, but I suspect that you, you don't um, indulge in 
too many of those exoteric forms. That you're an inquirer. Mm -hmm. That you're a meditator. I'm a thinker. Yeah. Right. So that's what I'm saying. In that moment, that, that's just a thought that it's, everything is like that. And that's it's the moment. It's just a thought. It's just, it's here, it's there, it's everywhere. Those are thoughts. But it's a concept, it's an identification. You know. It seems to be here, but if you <coughs> if you jumped into cold water you would probably forget about that quick. <laughs> yeah. So it's like a bubble, you know. And there's something else to worry about. <laughs> Mm. Is this relevant to what something you put on the board today about waking the child from the dream? Is that I read somewhere about waking the child from the dream? I don't know what you mean. Oh. Did I put something on the board about that? Well, I think it was either in one of the interviews or oh yes, in that interview with me. Yeah, right. When you see a child having a nightmare, you, right. you try to wake them, the but if you can't wake them, you don't take extreme measures. Uh, it's just a dream. Yeah, yeah. But I, I felt this feeling is is what I hear right. you saying. It's, it's a dream. It's not a real thing that's happening to you. You're dreaming. And if I could wake you up by playing you a tape. Well, I don't want to invalidate the experience. It's a mm. real dream. Mm. So it's a real depression or it's a real claustrophobic, you know, experience. But that how real is the question? I mean, we can also have a real intercession in the dream. You know. Like do some real dream work. So um, overthinking also gets very claustrophobic uh, <coughs> and tiring. Yeah, I've got a question. Um, yeah, Lester, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. Um, I'm quite used to sitting for long periods of time, and I get a lot of physical aches and pains. And I was wondering if you have any advice about that. Feel what it is. Is it 
sensation? Is it hot? Is it throbbing? You know, does it just stay that way? Like some of our pains are slightly imagined. Like our legs boiled with sleep. We have a lot of problems with that. Why don't we just let it go to sleep? It won't atrophy and fall off in a half an hour. But we have some problems with that, you know. And tension and all this. So the more we can relax, the more we notice we're creating a lot of the pains also with the way we hold ourselves, the way we resist. Now, undeniable, there's plenty of pain. It is undeniable. But how we work with it makes all the difference. <coughs> Even in the extreme case, like natural childbirth, if you breathe into it, if you allow it, you know, you go with it and all that, it can be very joyous. So it, it could be helpful to distinguish pain from suffering. We don't have to suffer about it. We could actually be with it, dissolve in, into it. You know, don't try to drive it away all the time. That's just attachment and aversion. Being thrown about by pleasure and pain. But cultivate a little more equanimity towards it and really sense what's going on and be aware of it. It might heighten your awareness. And finally, when it comes to difficulty, you know, then just move and relax and start again. You don't have to just wait and try to get it up, grin our teeth and, you know, hold on. We can relax and start another meditation session without even going anywhere. Just start again. But pain and sitting practice is a big issue, as in life, actually. But we're just talking to you with about meditation practice. So I think the big issue in how we work with it has a lot to do with how our practice goes and if we enjoy it or not and how much we can do it and so on. But dealing with it is very important. Don't think we have to get rid of the pain so we can really meditate. That's an illusion. We can meditate on the pain and be aware of the pain even breathe into the pain, be one with the pain, you know, be the pain, then there's no one being pained. If there is just pain, if we're not judging it, trying to get rid of it, if we're not separate from it. So look into that. And also the relaxation component I think is very important. I don't know, I just thought about this. Couldn't you look upon depression as a kind of pain? (coughs) Yeah. Um, the thing is depression is more as going into the suffering like we have pain and that's a physical pain maybe like mental pain or grief or you know some problems chemical imbalance even and then we get depressed about it and it's like a downward spiral so it's like more like suffering on top of pain and then it becomes like a real quicksand so it's not just pain of course you could say can you just be aware of the depression that's very hard of course you could theoretically it's like, if you can be aware of falling asleep, then falling asleep is not a distraction. But it's very hard not to be sucked down by that, the wholeness of the depression or the wholeness of the falling asleep. Although we could be aware while we're falling asleep and right into our dreams. It's very hard. And same with depression. Or death, for that matter. Yeah, you have to catch it early. Well, you have a problem with depression? No. But I'm very sympathetic for people to do. Yeah. It's a hard thing. 
Okay, maybe we'll end here. Okay, thank you. Good night, everybody. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.